I want to read this morning's scripture that's going to set us up uh, for this next installment of our signs series. This is from John chapter 6. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that, God, that the Son of Man can give you, for God the Father has given me the seal of His approval. And they replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? And Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one He has sent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can have a seat. <clears throat> Well, many of you uh, will remember <clears throat> a comedian by the name of Bill Ingvall. Anyone remember Bill Ingvall? Uh, not that he's gone. He's still alive as far as I know. But uh, he was part of the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, and Bill Ingvall had a, a stand-up routine, and his big thing, anybody know? Here's your sign, right? Here's your sign. And so uh, here are some of my favorite jokes that he would tell, um, and here's the way that he set it up. And I, these are his words, not mine. I would not write these in a sermon, but basically he, he would say this. Um, I have a hard time with stupid people, okay? And, and what he would say is, life would be a lot easier if stupid people would just wear a sign around their neck, and then you would know, oh, this person's not very bright, and that would make all the interactions easier. And so he, he told some stories, and they'd go like this. Uh, one day, uh, he and his wife were getting ready to move across the country, and so they were packing up their U-Haul. There's a big truck in their driveway, and they're loading up with boxes. And his neighbor, who he had known for a long time, came out and said, hey, are you guys moving? He said, no. Just once every few weeks, we like to pack up all our stuff. We like to see how many boxes it takes, right? Here's your sign. Uh, another story uh, he told, he, he would talk about uh, going fishing with his buddy, and they were out in the boat one day. They'd caught a lot of fish. They were coming back to the dock. He pulled up his line of fish that he caught, and the guy standing on the dock said, wow, did you catch all those? And he looked him straight in the face and said, No. We just talked them into giving up. They jumped right into the boat. Here's your sign, right? Another one he, he told us uh, he had a flat tire. He was driving on the highway, had a flat tire, pulled off into the gas station, and as he pulled in, service attendant comes out and said, sir, do you have a flat tire? And he looked him in the eye and said, no, strangest thing happened. So I was driving down the road. The other three just swelled right up. Here's your sign. And maybe my favorite is uh, he came in, he, a bunch of family at, at their house, and it was storming outside, really heavy rain, and he walked in the house, he's soaking wet, dripping from head to toe, and one of his family members looked at him and said, is it raining out there? He said, no, I just decided to take the fish for a walk. <laughs> here's your sign. Uh, now, here's why we start with that, because this is sort of how John writes his, his gospel. Not that John would call us stupid people. That's not the point. But John wants to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is who he says that he is. Here's your sign over and over and over again. There's these signs that point to a greater reality. Here's the miraculous thing Jesus has done so that we would understand who he is. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes his thesis statement. This is the whole reason he wrote the book. Here's what he says. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life. So we're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning, the feeding of the 5,000. 
And with all of these sign miracles, here's what we have to understand. Here's the question we need to ask. What does the sign show us? What does the sign show us? We'll begin by reading the first portion of the text, starting in verse 1, chapter 6 of the book of John. Here's what he says. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. And a huge crowd was following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Here's where we take our first time out because John gives us a contextual clue that is of extreme importance. It was time for the Passover. John begins his narrative by informing us of something that is significant. Because the Passover for a Jewish person was like the 4th of July, but times 10, maybe times 100. This is one of the most significant parts of their entire year. And the Passover was not just about a physical liberation. It was not just a memorial of them actually escaping Egypt, but about the spiritual liberation that accompanied it. And it was deeply significant for Jewish people, people who would have been gathered around Jesus on the hillside that day. Another important thing that we need to note before we continue is that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, outside of the resurrection. It's the only one. And so whatever the sign wants to show us, it's of extreme importance. John is a little bit different as an author. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are known as the synoptic Gospels. In fact, most people believe the book of Mark was the earliest account And Matthew and Luke, although they did their own homework and research and wrote their own account, drew from Mark as a source material. But John's different. He takes a different path and he explains explains things in a different way. He's intentional and editorial. He's methodical in his approach. And more than just history, he's after proving the validity of this man who is Jesus. Passover was a great time of longing and expectation for the Jewish people. Hope would have been in their hearts, optimism on the horizon. They wanted to believe that God would liberate them again. And the crowd begins to follow this man named Jesus. After seeing his miracles and hearing his teaching, he is now a full-blown spectacle. The crowd goes wherever Jesus goes. And so Jesus, seeing the crowd gathered around them, He turns to Philip and he says this, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Questions play a key role in these sign miracles. Dusty touched on this a little bit last week. At the wedding at Cana, he turns to his mother who asked him to do something about the situation and he he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? To the royal official who is asking For Jesus to to heal his son, he says, will you never believe unless you see a miraculous sign and wonder? To the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, he looks him in the eyes and says, do you want to get well? And now to Philip, his disciple, he looks at him and says, where can we buy enough bread to feed all these people? Jesus knows that questions are the best opportunity for faith to grow. You might have your own questions this morning, and that's good. Questions are the best opportunity for faith to grow. It's why he asks so many. But some of us sit here and wonder, why Philip? 
Why single Philip out out of all of the 12 there gathered with him that day? Why single Philip out? And here's what we know. In the first chapter of the book of John, as Jesus is calling disciples to himself, it says that he called a young man named Philip who was from Bethesda or Bethsaida, as some translations put it. And we realize that Jesus has just left a place where he healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. We're in Philip's hometown. If anyone knew how to solve this, this issue, it would be Philip. He's in his own stomping grounds. So Philip is startled, but seriously takes this question of Jesus, and he begins to do the math in his own head, right? Where can we buy enough bread? He's carry the one. And, you know, he's sort of working through the problem. But Jesus knows that Philip won't ever arrive at an answer. Scholars would agree that although it says 5,000 men were present, likely this number is somewhere between 12 to 15,000 people. I don't know if I could even buy enough bread here today to feed that number of people at one time. Philip offers his best excuse to Jesus. Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to buy bread, let alone to feed them a meal, maybe a snack. Some more little translations say that um, they give an actual amount of 200 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage, and so that would have been about eight, eight months worth of wages. Philip was saying, listen, it would take almost an entire year for somebody to work to buy enough bread, not for a meal, but just for everybody to have a little. Jesus, what you're asking is impossible. Bread was considered essential for any meal. In fact, it was equated with existence in many circumstances. It was the most fundamental thing to nourishment in ancient culture. But God-sized problems don't have human-sized answers. God-sized problems don't have human-sized answers. A 15,000-person problem is not something that a single individual could come up with. So Andrew, having overheard this conversation, he steps in, and, and here's where we'll pick it up. Verse 6, he was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. And here's what we just talked about. Even if, he, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that to this huge crowd? Andrew overhears their conversation and he finds a young boy with a small lunch. About the equivalent of a lunchable. Five barley loaves and two small fish. And John gives another important clue. Because barley was the bread of the poor. Barley was the bread of the poor. It was easily accessible. It was the most easy, to, uh, plentiful grain to gather. And so barley loaves were the most common loaves of bread. And we can deduce from that detail that this young boy was poor. He didn't have much going on. In fact, that meal may have been his only meal for the day. It may have been the only meal he had for several days. However, he willingly surrenders it. Notice the contrast here. First, we have a disciple, Philip, who asks the question, what will this cost me? But then we have a young boy who says, here's what I have to contribute. The disciple says, what will this cost me? But the young boy says, here's what I have to contribute. And in Matthew 18, verse 3, here's what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. 
Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus asks us to be childlike. But childlike does not mean childish. My daughter Campbell, who I've talked about before and many of you know, is two and a half. And ever since we've put her in a crib and she goes to sleep at night, ever since about the age of one, there's this thing that my wife and I will do sometimes where we'll go into her room and if she's had a bad dream or something like that, she's just having a hard time sleeping, we will actually physically climb up into the crib and lay down with her and comfort her and help her go back to sleep. It's, you should watch it sometime. It's hard to get in and out of that thing. But uh, one night, Campbell woke up, and this was about a month ago, Campbell woke up and she was just having a hard time and being kind of spastic and we didn't know what was going on. And so rather than, you know, be upset and go in and scold her, I just told Bailey, I'm, I'm going to go get in bed with her. I'm going to go help her calm down. And so I walked down to her room and I climbed up into her crib. We laid down, we got the blanket pulled over. I said, okay, it's time to go to sleep. She just looked at me, this beautiful moment. She looked at me right in the eyes and said, Daddy, will you please get out? (laughs) And, you know, it's simultaneously heartbreaking, and I'm trying to hold back laughter at the same time. And so I climbed out of her bed and walked down and told my wife what happened. But kids are so honest, right? There's such a simplicity to the way that they think about things. She doesn't know that I have feelings. <laughs> she doesn't know that. She didn't know that she just hurt them, right? All she knew is, hey, this is, I, I don't want you to be in here. Kids are simple. They're honest. Their faith is simple. Childlike does not mean childish. That was a childlike moment. Campbell is also in the middle of what's called the terrible twos which means she's added a lot of words and phrases to her vocabulary, and most of those phrases start with words like me, mine, give me, I want. Bailey uh, just took the kids with her parents out to Colorado to visit some family, and I loaded them up in the car this last week, and um, they set off for (laughs) a drive um, in which I did not participate in, uh, thank the Lord. Um, They decided to drive through the night, and Uh, So Bailey texts me uh, that in the middle of the night, Campbell uh, has some headphones and she can watch some movies on the iPad, you know, and we're on long trips. And so she had watched a couple of movies and Bailey had told her, listen, it's time to be done with movies. We're going to all go to sleep here in the car. And Campbell was kind of giving some lip back to Bailey and um, Bailey said, Campbell, I'm the mom. You're going to listen to me. And without missing a beat, Campbell takes off her headphones and looks at Bailey and I says, no, I'm the mom and you're going to listen to me, <laughs> okay? Uh, pray for us. Um, we're working on it. But uh, Campbell's favorite snack is fruit snacks, and she actually says it fruit snacks. Got to be careful with that one. Uh, she's a good sharer, honestly. She's a pretty good sharer, and, and here's why. Because fruit snacks um, are always available, as, as far as she's concerned, in our pantry. There's, we've never run out. There's always plenty in there. And that's her favorite thing. You know, we get home um, from daycare at the end of the day. I'll grab her a package of fruit snacks. And so she's good at sharing them. She'll say, Daddy, do you want one? Or Mommy, do you want one? Or she'll walk up to her five-month-old brother or sister and try to shove one in their mouth. And we have to correct that a little bit. But she's a good sharer. And here's why. Because in her mind, there's, there will be no shortage of fruit snacks. There's always more. She's eager to share them with others. That's childlike. 
Childish is me, mine, I want, give me. There's a shortage here, and so I'm going to hold on to everything that I have. That's childish. But to be childlike is to say, I know nothing of shortage. There's always been abundance, and so I'm eager to share it. The disciples look out for their own interests. That's childish. But the boy entrusts what he has to Jesus for the good of others. That's childlike. Andrew's seemingly correct comment is a classic example of what we do all the time. What good will five barley loaves and two fish do among so many? We do this a lot, actually. And maybe in not this exact phrasing, we kind of put this through the paces in our own mind. Since I can't help everyone, I won't help anyone. The world's problems are so big. There's so many hungry kids. There's so many uh, people who face starvation. Or there's so many people without clean water. There's so many people who face abuse. Or there's all these kinds of things. And the world's problems are so big. And so because I can't help everyone, I won't help anyone. We're just immobilized in our inactivity. But perhaps one of my, my favorite phrases that I've ever heard, and I try to repeat it often, is do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. It's what this boy decided to do. And this is fascinating, because Jesus then takes the loaves and the fish, and before he does anything, do you know what he does? He gives thanks. Now, if you're keeping score at home, a 15,000-person problem is not solved with five small loaves and two small fish. None of us would see that as provision None of us would jump up and down and say, thank you, Lord, for providing food for all of these people. Jesus immediately goes to gratitude, immediately goes to thanksgiving, and he offers thanks to God for what they do have. But I love that this young boy gave what he had in anticipation, not as a reaction. I sure appreciate the generosity of this church. I really do. It's been phenomenal to witness in my short time here so far. And about a month ago, we did a fundraiser. And you guys showed up, and you raised a lot of money, nearly $15,000 to help send our students to summer conference. That's amazing. I've never been a part of a church that raised that much money before. But we still get this backwards pretty often. Most often, we give in response. Thank you, Lord, for what you've already done. Therefore, I'm going to give some of it back to you. I had a good financial quarter. I made a higher commission than I anticipated. I sold some things for more money than I thought that I would, and so here's the extra. We give as a reaction. But that's not what this young boy models, and that's not the lesson that Jesus teaches here. Giving thanks in advance Giving an offering in advance, in anticipation. Lord, here's all of what I have because I'm expecting, I'm believing, I'm anticipating good and perfect gifts to come from you for your glory and for my good. God, thank you for what I do have. I place it all in your hands. It seems unnatural that we would be so trusting. But the supernatural is always unnatural. Jesus takes the loaves and the fish, and the miracle of multiplication begins. And many of us, we read this text, and if you're like me, you kind of read through this narrative, and you're like, how? How is it that Jesus can take these loaves of bread and these fish and just begin to pull them apart, and there's never a shortage? 
Like everyone got to have plenty. How does this happen? And this thought struck me this week as I was considering that very question. And and here's the point that I came to. Even if this was explained to me, would I really understand? Like, can, can miraculous things actually be explained in a way that I'd be like, okay, yeah, I get it. No, that makes sense. So John, we have to remember what John's motivation is. I've written all these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So John doesn't waste time with how. We probably wouldn't get it anyway. We don't get how, but we do get who. We don't get how, but we do get who. It's what John wants us to see, that Jesus is the miracle. So Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks to God and distributed them to the people. And afterward, he, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So the baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. We're meant to understand, we're meant to see that Jesus mirrors Moses. Right there in in verse 12, should strike a chord of familiarity within us. To gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Jesus feeds the 5,000 just as God fed the people manna in the wilderness. And we'll get to more of that later. But here's what was important. You notice the phrase that John uses there? Everyone was full. Everyone was full. This was supernatural sustenance. It wasn't just a meal for the immediate. It was pointing to what is ultimate. His bread was not just enough to hold everyone over, but to completely satisfy them. And then John records that Jesus says this, gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Not only were 15,000 people filled full, but they gathered more than what they started with, likely more than 100 times so. And there were were 12 baskets full gathered. Now there's a lot of speculation. Does this number mean something? Is there one for each disciple? Does it have to do with the 12 tribes of Israel? Is there something going on here? And the truth is we don't know. No one has any idea. But I like to imagine that this young boy who showed up with five small barley loaves and two small fish went home with a basket full to a family who probably didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Give what you have today and trust God for tomorrow. Watch him do his thing. And so as we're thinking about Jesus and Moses, we need to be reminded of what was happening in Exodus 16. God had led his people into the wilderness. And he gave this instruction. He said, food will come down from heaven. And as he's speaking through Moses, Moses says, gather only what you need for this day. Don't take more than that. Gather only what you need for that day because the food would spoil. It was meant to sustain them for that day, but something happened through the night where even if they gathered more than what they needed, it would spoil, it would mold, it would become rotten. It wouldn't last beyond the immediate. John John shows us that Jesus provides a meal that is not just meeting an immediate need, but the ultimate need. Gather up all the leftovers because it will not spoil, perish, or fade. The meal that Jesus provides, his life, his work, his bread, his blood, provides a life that lasts forever. And then we read at the conclusion of this miraculous event, here's what it says, starting in verse 
14, when the people saw him, when they saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we've been expecting. And when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. This was Passover. Liberation was on the minds of the people and they they thought to themselves, here he is. Here's the one who can do it. And the way to our deliverance is to make Jesus our king. So let's do it by force. Surely he can pound through the gates of the city and demand to be made king with that kind of miraculous power. But Jesus was not just concerned with the deliverance of those people at that time, but with the deliverance of all people for all time. And so he knew, he knew the way to secure the crown was not through the crowd, but through the cross. They wanted to force him to be their king. And Jesus knew the way to secure the crown that he wanted was not through the crowd, but through the cross. So now as we sort of begin to land the plane here, we're going to move into this second part of John chapter 6. It's what's known as the bread of life discourse. Starting in John 6.22, all the way through 59, Jesus has these encounters in which he begins to explain this miraculous event that people just witnessed. And we won't read all of this text this morning, but we'll spend some time talking about a few things. Starting in verse 27, here's what he says. Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Here's what had happened. The crowd found him again. And they were expecting, they were sort of demanding that Jesus provide another sign, that he fix them another meal. And he's like, you guys aren't getting it. You're not quite understanding. You're still chasing after things that might waste away. Don't be so concerned with perishable things. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. Now, again, we have this mirror. We have this parallel between Jesus and Moses. And in Exodus 16, we are reminded that Moses and the people of Israel were in the wilderness. But this is not the time where Israel was forced to wander in the wilderness because of their disobedience. No, this was a decision that God made. God led them into the wilderness immediately following the Exodus. Exodus 13, 17 says this. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. It was God's intention to lead his people into the wilderness. Why? So that they could learn to completely trust him. Israel was notorious. The people were notorious for complaining, for saying things like, why don't we just go back to Egypt? At least we have something to eat there. Or did God just lead us out here into the desert to die, not willing to trust him, not able to see all the signs in their past that would point to a greater future? But God does not lead us into the wilderness to die, but to show us who he is. And friends, you may be in your own season of hardship, of searching, of desperation, of confusion, of questions, but God has not led you there to die to waste away. He's led you there to show you who he is. Because we only really find out who God is when we come to the end of ourselves. 
where can we buy bread for all of these people, is a question that Jesus intended for Philip not to answer, but to realize that Jesus was the only one who had an answer. Philip needed to come to the end of himself, as did all of the disciples, so that they would recognize only Jesus has this kind of ability. Jesus is the miracle. Understanding our inadequacy is the key to life that lasts for eternity. All of our assets, accomplishments, all of our accumulation will not see us through our season of wandering in the wilderness. When hard times hit, money doesn't help. They cannot provide the life that we so desperately want, the peace that we long for. J.N. Darby says this, when you get out of your nothingness, you get into it. It's a confusing statement. Helps to flip it, flip it on its head. Get into your nothingness and you get out of it. When we recognize our own inadequacy, we can see clearly the Son's ability. We come to the end of ourselves, that's when we realize who God is. He's a provider, He's a sustainer, He is the one who delivers and saves and makes a way. So praise God for the opportunities to recognize our own inadequacies. He's opening our eyes to His Son's ability. Now, there's a critical distinction that we need to make between what happened in the wilderness and what was happening at the time that Jesus performed this miracle. We mentioned this before, but bread came down from heaven in the wilderness for that day and that day only because God is sustaining them for something greater. They were still intended to go to the promised land. God did not want them to grow comfortable where they were, content with what they had. It was only enough for that day, and he was only sustaining them for that day because there was a greater reality. Jesus, however, is not just sustenance. He is deliverance. Jesus is not a holdover. He is the prize. He is the goal. Jesus is both promise and provision. We continue on in the Bread of Life discourse in 632 and 33. Here's what he says. I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is both the provision and the promise. He is all that we need in our now and he is all that God desires for us for eternity. To have him, to know him, to walk with him, to live life alongside him is the most full and rich and desirable kind of life. This is why he says in the Bread of Life discourse, I am the bread of life. Now there are three words in the Greek language that can translate to our English word, life. The first is this, bios. It's where we get our word biology, and it means, at its most basic sense, it means existence. Your physical nature, your flesh, your blood, your organs, your skin, it's to be alive. Second is this, it's psyche. It's where we get our word psychology. And at its most basic, it means essence. It's your mental or psychological nature. There is a you that exists beyond the physical. It's your inner self. But then there's this third word, and it is zoe. It's where we get our English name, Zoe. That's the most you know, creative thing I had. But at its most basic, if we could just reduce it, just think eternity. 
There is something within us that has a deep longing for more than what is physical or more than what is social or mental or even psychological. We have this deep innate longing for what is eternal. And it's interesting because Jesus uses bread, something that supports and sustains bios, as a way of describing himself as zoe. That's the word that he uses there. I am the bread, not of bios, not of sike, but of zoe. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the beginning and end in and of himself. He is the resurrection and the life. And so with this knowledge, with this linguistic awareness, let's look again at verses 27 and 29. Verse 27, he says, don't waste your energy chasing after things that won't last. Don't waste your life chasing after things that will waste away. We attempt to attain something beyond what is material through all of our accumulation of it. Maybe I'll be satisfied when I have the next thing. We're chasing after beauty and security and stability and all screams of this greater reality. We try to gain this Zoe kind of life by acquiring and improving bios and CK. There's a deep hunger within us for something more. All of our chasing and trying and grasping for more and better is all about the immediate. If I just had more money or more Bitcoin or better clothes or a better house or better kids, amen, when I get a nicer car, when I get in shape, when I start this new habit or workout or diet or routine or whatever, when I become the next thing, then I will feel more full and better about myself. Then I'll have the kind of life that I've always longed for. And we focus our energy on bios and CK when what we really want is zoe. Jesus is the only place we can find it. And here's what's interesting. As the crowd continues to press on Jesus, and we read this portion earlier, that's we want to do that kind of work that leads us into that kind of life. And here's what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Friends, that's good news for all of us. It should fill our hearts with hope. It should make our lives full of joy. Because Jesus has already done for us the thing that we most desperately want. We spend most of our adult lives working towards certain goals. Improvements, enhancements, advancements, straining, trying, earning. But Zoe is not found in any of those things. Those are all working towards bios and CK. But notice what Jesus has everyone do prior to the miracle. Just before he takes the bread and the fish, he tells the disciples to tell everyone to sit down. And we're meant to notice something here. Because only those who sit down, those who sit down have already done their work. That's the only people who sit down. Their work is finished. The only work to do that we have to do is believe. To look upon Jesus and realize we are at the end of ourselves. We have no other option. We either believe in him or we die. But what would it change about your everyday existence to really have Zoe, this life that lasts forever? 
that's full, that's meaningful, that's rich, that's not found in what's material. This full assurance in Jesus. How would it change your bios and CK to be full of Zoe? We would probably all look a lot more like a young boy who handed over all that he had to Jesus. To believe the work that we're called to do. To believe is childlike. It's not childish. Finding the end of ourselves doesn't mean we sit on our hands, but that in childlike fashion we offer what is in our hands for the use and purpose of the kingdom and experience the blessing of God in the process. It isn't a passive belief. It is a proactive belief. Jesus, here is what I have and I only have because you gave it to me in the first place. I assign all of it to your ability and participate with you in full humility. Later on in the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus will say these words in John 6, 47 through 51. Here's what he says. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. And anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Here's what it boils down to. We all have a longing to be free from our longing. We don't want to want anymore. It's why we keep chasing after things that we think will satisfy us ultimately. Maybe when I get this next thing or meet this next milestone, then I will feel full and satisfied. But there's always a next, isn't there? There's never enough of what we could accumulate that really satisfies us. Because we're meant to have life that is Zoe kind of life. Life that lasts forever. Life that only comes from Jesus. Life that is eternal. And when you know him, when you do life with him, you can be satisfied in him. Friends, what John wants to show us is that Jesus is not just sustenance. He is deliverance. He's not just a meal for the moment. He's a meal that leads us into eternal life. So we're going to take communion together. If you have your communion, you can pull that out. And a a lot of scholars look at the Bread of Life discourse and they think, is Jesus pointing to communion? Does he already have this on his mind? Is he thinking about the meal that he'll share and the meal that we would share in this moment? And here's the simple answer, no. No, communion points to this. It's just a different way of looking at it. Communion points back to these words of Jesus. I am the bread of life. And we have built our entire religious system around this one truth, that Jesus is the only source of life. It's why we do this every week because we will forget quickly and will chase after things that do not lead to the kind of life that we long for. But if you have a longing like me, if you have a longing to be free of all of your longing, this is the only place you'll find it. And so as we enter into this time of communion, I just want to read to you the words of Jesus. John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58. Here's what he says. I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. 
But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink, and anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, but will live forever. Let's commune with Jesus.